We've been studying a letter, a piece of correspondence from Paul to a young church growing but struggling. Struggling because of outsiders, we would say. That is, they weren't birthed really in the church. They weren't saved through a work of an evangelist like Paul or the ongoing ministry of the local church. But it seems that this group of people came from the outside and came into the church with a message, a message that what Paul had preached, what he had brought, how they had started in grace was not sufficient. They needed more. And we've given these men the name Judaizers because of their leanings toward Judaism, keeping the law of Moses like a Jewish person, though they claimed to know Christ and believe in Christ. They had leanings toward Judaism. So I like to look at it like a great light in the region of Galatia had been turned on. But whenever you turn on a great light, great amounts of bugs come in and enjoy the light. And they can be pests. They can be nuisances. And these Judaizers, in Paul's opinion, were nothing but nuisances. In fact, toward the end of this letter, we're only going to read eight verses and we're done. Toward the very end of this, Paul basically says, now, I'm done. Tell everybody in this camp to bug off. Leave me alone. I've handled the issue. There is no such thing as a perfect church. You cannot read the New Testament letters without coming to that conclusion, whether it's Corinth or Galatia or even Ephesians or Philippi, the church at Thessalonica. If you read the little postcards that Jesus gives in Revelation 2 and 3, you realize that every church is imperfect. And if you think you've discovered the perfect church, you just wait around for a couple months, you'll find you were wrong. And that's because it's filled with us. We're imperfect individuals, and a whole bunch of imperfect individuals make an imperfect church. Now, some people can tolerate certain imperfections, but not others. And so they'll tolerate it for a while, then they'll leave. Others can tolerate the other stuff that somebody else can't tolerate, but not other stuff. And that's why I thank God for so many great churches in a community. In fact, I keep a list of what we would consider strong churches because when anybody would gripe about something, I let them know there's so many great, wonderful, godly churches that would love to have them. But the problem in this church, the Church of Galatia, was the legalists that were being tolerated. Tolerated. They put up with it. There was a problem in the church at Pergamos that Jesus wrote a letter to. He said, you have there those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. There they are. They're teaching this nonsense. They're in your midst. You're allowing it. You're putting up with it in the name of whatever. But it was destroying that particular body of believers. Now, beginning in verse 11, and you can see, we just have a few verses to the end. Paul is going to sum up everything. He's going to bring us to the bottom line. He's going to take his message in, in every one of these sections. 
personal, doctrinal, and practical, and he's going to take and sum them up into the bottom line, one large emphatic appeal for God's grace, to live in the liberty of God's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, as some people like to define grace as. And so he begins in verse 11 and closes it out at verse 18. Let's read it all together. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul began with grace. Paul ends with grace. Paul is full of grace. I love what one person said. He wrote, man is broken. He lives by mending and God's grace is the glue. God's grace is the glue. What puts a person's life together that's been shattered by sin? What restores someone who has had the bad habits of the past ruin a relationship, ruin a business, devastate a life? Only the glue of God's grace. Or to frame this great theological principle in a Nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Well, the Judaizers were acting like the king's men and the king's horses, trying desperately through their own ways, their legalism, their regulations, their rules, their stipulations, to put people back together again. But it wasn't working. Because the glue that was needed that was absent from their message from their ministry was the grace of God. So in these eight verses, this bottom line message is a final comparison. What Paul is basically doing is, is asking his audience to compare both groups, both messages. On one hand, we have the grace of God as preached by Paul. On the other hand, we have the law of God as preached by the Judaizers. He's saying, compare them, look at them. Every election, we get a few boxes of what are called voters' guides. They're simple. They're nonpartisan, but they tell the value system, the belief system, and the voting record of each candidate. Where does he or she stand on this issue, on that issue? And as you compare the message and the values of each candidate, you make up your own choice. Paul is asking the Galatians to cast their vote. Look at the guide 
Look at the voting record. Look at the belief system. Look at the values of the Judaizers versus me, Paul, my ministry, my life, my message. And so just as you would have a little flyer that has comparative shopping, and you can buy this item cheaper at this store than you could at that store, Paul is saying, I want you to shop a little bit here and cast your vote. Which will it be? In his bottom line conclusion, Paul is bringing them to two questions, two questions about the emphasis of grace versus the emphasis of the law or works. Question number one, and it's, it's implied and then answered, is the emphasis an outward emphasis or is it an inward emphasis? Question number two, is the emphasis a Godward emphasis or is it a manward emphasis? And that's what we'll cover in the next few minutes and then we'll close. But look at verse 11. Paul says in his concluding paragraph, see or behold with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. When Paul wrote a book, a letter, he dictated it. You, you mustn't picture Paul sitting at a desk with quill in hand thinking about what to write next. Rather, think of Paul pacing the room or sitting across from a personal secretary, what they call an amanuensis, somebody who would take the dictation and write it down. So Paul would have the freedom to think and dictate and somebody would write it down. Then, after the main body of the letter was written, Paul would sign it giving a few comments at the very end of the letter. That was his practice. At the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, the salutation by the hand of Paul. That is, I'm writing the last few concluding remarks or the last sentence he signed off. So the body was dictated. The last portion was handwritten by Paul himself. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, the salutation by the hand of Paul, which is my sign or mark in all my epistles, so I write. It was just his style to do that. But rather than just a concluding remark like, grace to you, see you later, au revoir, adios, he writes more. He writes an entire paragraph. He is making an emphatic bottom line statement. So you got to picture Paul removing the pen from the hand of the amanuensis, the personal secretary, the scribe, and saying basically, take a hike, take a walk, go get a falafel at McDavid's or something down the street <laughs> while I write the rest of this. I want to write it myself. And that's what he does. Beginning in verse 11, he's writing all the way down to verse 18, a whole paragraph. What does he mean, however, when he says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, some think that Paul is referring to the length of the letter of Galatians because the King James Version puts it this way. See how large a letter I have written to you. But I think that's a poor translation because the emphasis should be as corrected here and in other modern translations. See what large letters I'm writing. Long, big, big case letters, not 12 point. 36 point. 
Besides, the book of Galatians isn't a terribly long letter to begin with. It's not like Romans or 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. It's rather short. So I don't think he's speaking of how long of a document it is. Well, what does he mean then? Well, suggestion number two is that Paul had poor eyesight. And those who are getting older, those of us who are getting older, can appreciate this. My eye doctor told me a few years ago, now, are your eyes going bad? I said, no, they, they're great. And he goes, well, they will go bad. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe others will go bad, but mine are fine. He goes, oh, they'll go bad. It'll happen to everyone, usually. And he told me what I could look out for. And, and, and that's why uh, the, the, the best version of the Bible for so many is the extra large version. And that's what Paul is writing here. It's the first large print Bible. He writes big letters firsthand from his own heart to the Galatians. The question would be is why would Paul have to write large letters? Uh, answer, he had bad eyesight. Due to what, one would ask? Some have suggested that when Paul was first in Galatia, something bad happened to him that caused poor eyesight. He went to Lystra. And while he was at Lystra, there was a man who was lame from the womb from birth. And Paul looked at him, and he noticed that this guy had faith to be healed. There was this intensity about him. Paul commanded him to get up and walk. There was an instantaneous physical healing. It created such an uproar in the city of Lystra that the crowd said, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They even renamed Paul and Barnabas. They called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes or Mercury because he was the chief speaker. And they were sacrificing animals to them and they put garlands of flowers and leaves around them. Paul and Barnabas ran into the crowd, ripped their clothes, a sign of disgust, and said, what are you doing? We're just men like you are. In fact, we've come to preach the gospel to have you turn away from this bogus nonsense. It's a free rendering, my own translation. <laughs> and turn to the living God. Well, at this point, they were sort of shaken because they were in the midst of a worship service, worshiping Paul and Barnabas. The gods, Paul and Barnabas, wouldn't be worshipped. At that time, some of the hostile Jews from Iconium and Antioch came down and stirred up the crowds so that they stoned Paul. They went from wanting to worship him, now they want to stone him. And they did. And Paul lay out there and they supposed he was dead. He lay out there in the gutter. Didn't revive. And they say, he's gone home. He's in glory. He's in heaven. Paul's dead. What a loss. But he got up again. He got up again, dusted himself off, you know, shook his head a little bit, walked back into Lystra and preached. It is thought that from that incident of stoning that it caused a severe damage to Paul's eyesight that rendered probably not only his, him unable to see clearly, but paralyzing one hand so that he was unable to write, needing to dictate. And so the only way he could write in a way that he could see his own writing is to write big letters. Suggestion number three is that Paul wrote big letters because he was making an emphatic point, and that's possible. Just like we would write all caps and put, don't miss this exclamation point. 
It could be a way of stating an emphatic point. I have a friend who wrote a book about being an assistant pastor. He was an assistant pastor at the church I was spiritually raised at, and um, he had quite an interesting ministry. He was sort of edgy and, and even hostile sometimes, and he always spoke with exclamation points. Well, he wrote a book the same way, all capital letters. Every word, every sentence, every page, all caps. And I read the book and I thought, yep, it's just like Romaine, it's just like his style. Capital letters, exclamation point, because I want you to hear what I have to say. That could be what Paul is doing. A fourth suggestion, and I'm just throwing out all the options, is that Paul was treating them like children. They had regressed. They're maintaining a spiritual immaturity. They had gone from grace back into the law, back to the time of tutoring, back into bondage. So it's as if to say, hey, you're going to act like kids, I'll treat you like kids. Now, I have difficulty believing that's why Paul did it. Knowing the heart of Paul, I, I think I do, I don't think he did it that way. I think the explanation is somewhere between explanation two and three. Let's see, what was that again? Um, bad eyesight and making an emphatic point. Well, let's see what the point is. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. So the first question, the first issue of emphasis is this. Compare Galatia between my message, my ministry, their message, their ministry. Is the emphasis outward or inward? Well, their emphasis was outward. Paul's emphasis was the heart. And so we ask ourselves, what is the essence of Christianity? Is it outward? Is it rituals? Is it keeping ceremonies like baptism or confirmation or certain things that on a regular basis make you right before God? Or is it something deeper? Is, it, is the emphasis inward? What is it? It's inward. Their emphasis was outward. His emphasis was inward. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you won't get to heaven. Nicodemus is thinking physically, wasn't he? Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he go back into the womb? He's thinking purely on the physical realm. Jesus was dealing with the heart, the inner person, born again. Ganethe anothen, begotten from above, a spiritual awakening, a spiritual birth. The Judaizers emphasize what you do, the outward. Paul emphasized what he has done in the heart that translates into works later on. But the emphasis is of the heart. You see, the Judaizers were like their predecessors, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who emphasize also the outward. I'll tell you an example, and you go, oh, I remember that one. The scribes and the Pharisees came from Jerusalem, and they came to Jesus, and they were torqued. Your disciples, they said, don't wash their hands before they eat bread. 
Thus, they break the tradition of the elders. Now, now what was their beef or their bread? What, 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 was their, what was their issue? Was their issue, your disciples have committed adultery. Your disciples have stolen from our friends. No, your disciples broke our traditions. They didn't wash their hands right. Man, that's worse than my mom was when I was seven years old. And they followed Jesus and his disciples from Jerusalem to check this out. Man, that's really, really tight. Jesus said this, Why do you transgress the word of God by your traditions? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. What comes from his heart is what defiles him. You're focusing on the outward. Jesus was focusing on the inward. By the way, the hand washing was elaborate. They would first begin with hands, fingers pointed up to the heavens, and they would pour fresh water that would drip from the top of the fingers down past the knuckles, down to the wrist, dripping down to the ground. It was all specified and written exactly how the water would fall. After that, the hands were turned with the tips of the fingers facing down. The water was poured now from the wrist in the opposite direction to cleanse once more, and then you dried your hands. That was appropriate to cleanse from defilement. It was tradition. Pious Jews not only did it at every meal, but between each course at every meal. The disciples didn't. They've been hanging around Jesus. Jesus said, you know, we've blessed it in the Father's name. Go for it, boys. <gasps> you broke our traditions. It was an outward emphasis. The Judaizers were emphasizing circumcision, something outward, something visible, not something inward, not something from the heart. It's the same mistake that people make today in We'll take it out of circumcision. They make it baptism. Have you been baptized? How were you baptized? Were you baptized by us? Were you baptized the right way by us? <laughs> and they make the same huge outward emphasis deal that the Judaizers made 2,000 years ago with circumcision. There's even a teaching known as baptismal regeneration. You are not regenerated. You are not saved until you are baptized in our church by our elders in this capacity. Oh, we're so good at degenerating and focusing on what doesn't matter. We're good at that. The church throughout history has done that. The arguments... Do you have an organ and stained glass and robes? That's okay. Do you have a guitar? That's not okay. You have an electric guitar? That's really not okay. And drums? Oh, blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> you have a dove instead of a cross outside of the church? Whatever external trapping that we set our minds on as an emphasis that is outward versus something that is inward. I'm going to India here in March. First time I went to India, I had a mustache. Yes, even before my goatee that some people protested and prayed against here. <laughs> Seriously, there was a, somebody come and say, oh, we have a group, we're actually praying that you'd shave it off. 
I felt like growing it right back. <laughs> but I had a mustache. And I went to India, and before I went, my friend called me up, KP. He's been here before. He says, Brother Skip, there is only one problem. I said, what is it, KP? Our brothers in India do not understand American culture. And a mustache is a sign of rebellion. I said, oh, then I'll shave it off. If, if that's to them a, a symbol of rebellion, it's dumb, it's outward, but I'll shave it off. I don't want to stumble. What's funny is that subsequent to that, KP has not only grown a mustache, but a full beard. <laughs> and I'd forgotten about this till recently, and I was with him in India last time, and I looked over at him, and I saw that he had a beard, and another a pastor had a beard, another guy had a mustache, and I said, you know, 15 years ago I came here and you told me I couldn't have a mustache. You guys have like beard. You're growing hair everywhere. He goes, we have been changed by the grace of God. <laughs> Look down at verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Let me give you that in my translation. If your religion hasn't changed you, it's time for you to change your religion. It doesn't matter whether it's outward circumcision or outward uncircumcision, like the state of the Gentiles. What matters is, is your heart changed? Are you a new creation in Christ? Has your life changed inwardly? Sufficiently, that's the heart of it. That's what really matters. There was an old rabbinical axiom that said, the circumcised man will never see the fires of Gehenna. Another second rabbinical axiom, circumcision will save the nation of Israel from Gehenna or hell. So important was this ritual that some actually believed it would save a person's eternal soul. Paul is saying, what matters isn't what mark you have or don't have on the flesh. What matters is what God has done inside of your heart. A ritual of the flesh without a change of the heart is absolutely valueless. And here's the problem. And Paul is saying, compare now, compare. This group, the Judaizers, they're substituting a ritual for reality, a sign for substance, a ceremony for salvation. That's the hypocrisy of religion. You, do you remember that movie, The Godfather? I saw it when I was a kid. It frightened me. But something stuck in my mind. There's a couple of scenes in those movies where the mobsters go to confession. And they're in there confessing their sins, getting absolution. Yes, I want to say I've killed 14 men today. <laughs> okay, we'll do this, do that. Thank you, Father. Then they go out, ball guy down. They kept the ritual, but they didn't change their life. Did you know that Jesse James, once after he killed a man in a bank robbery, joined the Kearney County Baptist Church? On another occasion, he killed the bank teller 
joined the church choir that day and became an instructor to teach the choir how to sing hymns. Oh, he loved Sundays, he said. He loved going to church, but he was often too busy, you know, robbing, killing, pillaging. No change at all. Going through the ritual, but no change. And Paul says, that doesn't matter. What matters is a new creation. Um, would you quickly just, just keep a marker here and go back to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Romans 2. Uh, don't worry, we'll make it tonight. Only a few more verses. We're there. We're home, man. I think this will be beneficial to read this couple of verses in the context with which we have begun. Romans 2, two verses only, verse 28 and 29, last two of that chapter. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision, and for that matter, baptism, is a great sign, but it must be a sign of a reality, of a substance. It's like a wedding ring. Using this scripture, I would say, your wedding ring is honorable, as long as you're faithful to your spouse. But if you're not faithful to your spouse, your wedding ring is just a piece of metal. It's valueless. It's simply a sign. And you could go out and buy a ring and put it on this finger, this hand. Does it make you married? You'd assume somebody is married if they had it there. But it's valueless if the sign doesn't speak of a covenant of faithfulness, reality. So, huh. you ask people, are you a believer? Are you a believer in Christ? You know some of their answers. Well, I've been a member of this church for 25 years. Are you a believer? I was baptized here. And they go through a litany of the outward, not even answering the question you asked. So, question number one, in value shopping for the Galatians between Paul's message and their message, is the emphasis an outward message? Or is the emphasis an inward message? Their message was outward. Paul's was inward, the heart. That's the emphasis. Now go back to Galatians and we'll finish up. We'll go to the second question, the second emphasis. Here it is. Is the emphasis a Godward emphasis or is it a manward emphasis? Let me, let me explain. A Godward emphasis means I'm going to do something for God. It's going to come from man toward God. It's Godward. It's something I do to reach God. That's the emphasis of the religionists, the legalists, the Judaizers. Paul's emphasis is that it is a manward emphasis. It comes from God toward man. That's the gospel. Man's helpless. Man can't help himself. I remember my dad used to tell me, you know, the Bible says... God helps those who help themselves. And after reading through the whole Bible, I was able to say, Dad, with all due respect, the Bible doesn't teach that. 
Ben Franklin said that. <laughs> In fact, Dad, with all due respect, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. That's what grace is. That defines unmerited favor. The Judaizers didn't believe they were helpless. They liked the God helps those who help themselves religion. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be an American or be a Galatian back then. Theirs was what man can do for God. Paul's was what God has done for helpless man. So two mistakes the Judaizers made. One, they emphasized the outward. Two, they emphasized the God word, what man can do for God. So as many as desire to make a good showing of the flesh, these try to compel you to be or force you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now Paul is calling their bluff, verse 13, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Hmm. They'll go through and pick and choose what parts of the law they like, but they don't keep it all. In fact, nobody has kept it all. Peter said in Acts 15, when they said, unless you keep the law of Moses and are circumcised, you can't be saved, Peter said, even our fathers weren't able to bear the yoke that you're trying to put on Gentiles. Our Jewish forefathers could never do it, and you're trying to make everybody do it. Earning your way to heaven. So he calls their bluff. He says, even those who are circumcised, they don't keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Now notice he says in verse 12 um, that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now listen carefully. Why would this group of people insist so heavily upon a ritual of circumcision to begin their walk and then several rituals of keeping the Mosaic law to maintain their standing before God? Why would they insist on that? Answer, so they would avoid persecution. The world won't persecute religion generically. The world applauds and loves spirituality generally. But the world hates the gospel of Jesus Christ specifically. The cross wounds man's pride. You know why? Because the cross says, you're helpless. You're hopeless. You are under God's righteous wrath and God's ultimate judgment on your own. You need a savior in your place to wash away your sins because by nature and by choice you're a sinner. Who likes that message? That's the cross. Paul preached the cross. He lived the religious life. He abandoned that. Now he's preaching the cross. Paul is saying, I know why they insist on their value system, their message. They won't get persecuted being so generically religious, saying, I am doing something for God. It's my good works for God. We'll applaud that. Oh, you're such a wonderful person. But the true preacher of the cross, as Paul was, will be persecuted. The cross seems to say, as we see Jesus hanging on it, I'm here because of you. Jesus seems to be saying that from the cross. I'm here because of you. It's your sins I'm bearing. It's your debt I'm paying. It's your death I'm dying. It's your curse I'm suffering. The world hates that. 
I was down in Puerto Rico, I mentioned this to you, being part of a very small part of a film by Worldwide Pictures, I played a small part in it. I was with a producer who had uh, written and rewritten and retouched up and rewritten the script, and one of the actors in this film who was and is an unbeliever and plays the part of an unbeliever quite well <laughs> was one of the actors in the movie Black Hawk Down. I didn't see it, so I don't know which one he is, but I was in this film with him, and there was one line he didn't want to say. It was concerning blood and the blood of Christ. And he had blood on his hands in this scene because his friend had died who had been trying to lead him to Christ. And his friend was talking about the blood of Christ and his line was, what does blood have to do with anything? And so he didn't even want to bring up blood. And he came to us privately and he said, what do I have to say this blood stuff? What's this Christianity and blood? Why do you insist on blood? And he kept arguing with the producer and I put my arm around him, I said, friend, Without the blood of Christ, you're hopeless. There's hell waiting those who push the blood of Christ away. I mean, I, if I figure, he's, I'll make it plain. He was being plain with all sorts of colorful language. He didn't mind taking the Lord's name in vain. I didn't mind glorifying the Lord and telling him the truth. But as Paul mentioned, he didn't like it. So if you want to escape persecution, just preach generic religious dribble, fluff. Give everybody a hug, sing kumbaya, it'll all be okay. <laughs> but if you preach the message of the cross, which is emphasized inward and is manward from God, there will be persecution. But God forbid, verse 14, that I should glory except, I love this, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. They're boasting in the outward, I'm boasting in the inward. They're boasting in the God word, I'm boasting in the man word from God, the cross. I boast in it, I brag about it, I love it, I embrace it. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and the Israel of God. You want to experience real peace and, and God's mercy for your sin? Come to the cross. You, you want the guilt complex dealt with and guilt removed? Come to the cross. That's where it happens. That's where forgiveness happens. <laughs> From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Interesting. They were bragging in the mark of circumcision that they had. Paul was bragging in the mark of suffering on his body, the whipping marks, the beatings, because he preached the cross. Interesting. They made a boast in the flesh. He was boasting in the suffering for standing up for the spiritual focus and emphasis. Now, keep in mind, Paul at one time did boast in circumcision, didn't he? He said he did. Galatians chapter 3, he said, let me tell you my testimony. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisees, concerning um, righteousness, persecuting the church, 
concerning righteousness which comes from the law, I was perfect. But what I once counted as gain, I have now counted as rubbish, that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's all rubbish, he said. I now don't boast in my morality, but in humility in his sufficiency. You see, Paul realized that at one time in his life, being a good religious Jew, he had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. And so he said, I boast in his righteousness, not my own. So from now on, I'm done. He says, you know, uh, let no one trouble me. <laughs> I've had it. I've made my case. I'm done with it. For I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. There was a question that was asked before the service. It was on the sheet of paper and it was uh, by somebody in, in, the, in the group about stigmata. Because Paul says, from, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And somebody said, is that stigmata? Have you ever heard of stigmata? You, you probably hadn't until the film came out, but uh, some of you at least. But the Greek word here is stigmata. It's, it's plural for the Greek stigma, mark. And some have read this and thought, oh, Paul is speaking about the marks of the cross that like Francis of Assisi claimed to have had that he, when he contemplated the cross, um, areas on his hands and feet inside grew dark and even shed bits of blood, suffering the same kind of sufferings Jesus did. Paul seems, however, not to refer to that because the word stigma or stigmata originally meant a brand that you would give an animal or a slave, especially a runaway slave, to keep him safe and to bring him back to his master in loyalty. And all you have to do is read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and a few other passages, and you'll understand exactly what he means when he says, I bear the marks of my Lord Jesus Christ. It was the beatings for the persecution of preaching the gospel. So brethren, here it is, grace. He began with grace. He ends with grace. It's like a sandwich. It's a gray sandwich. Grace, and then personal, uh, historical, uh, doctrinal, applicational, then grace. Here it is, grace sandwich. Begins with grace and he ends with grace. So that's the bottom line. Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Christ died for our fall. And by the king's grace, he can put us back together again. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who has the glue. All of our reforms, all of our efforts fall short. It won't stick. It won't work. His grace is the glue.